Welcome to the Context Matters Podcast. I am your host, Cindy Parker. I am an educator, explorer, writer, and speaker. I enjoy gathering around the table with interesting people who have different life experiences from me. And then we get to talk about God, Bible, theology, and other tangentially related subjects. Your voice is always welcomed around this table. You can reach out to me and let me know what you're thinking about through my website, narrativeofplace.com. This week around the podcast table, we continue to talk about sexuality and the Bible with Dr. Anna Segas. She is the Assistant Professor of Biblical Studies at Gardner-Webb. And if you heard the first part of this conversation from last week, you may recall that she has been teaching a senior seminar this semester called Sexuality and the Bible, in which she took a posture of, let's all explore this together and see what we find with her students. And then they explored all kinds of issues regarding sexuality and not just homosexual and heterosexual debate that can be really easy for schools and churches to get lost in. With her students, Dr. Segas explored history, so our ancient Near Eastern assumptions different from Greco-Roman ones, and cultural and social roles and ethical implications of all sorts of issues, including eunuchs and intersex. Why don't people talk about that more? Well, we will today. I'm going to start the conversation with a look back to what Dr. Segas was referring to last week. Sometimes when we take an honest look at scripture and realize that marriages were financial decisions and women did not have control of their bodies, sex was not based on love, well, we see how our sacred text is not always a pretty text. I wanted to ask the perpetually challenging question many of us biblical studies professors deal with. What do you do when students become off-balanced with the fact that when we take an honest look at Scripture, there's a lot in there that isn't pretty, and yet it can be a meaningful and instructive text? So lean in and enjoy the conversation. Oh, man. I'm not sure I do a great job at reconstructing. The deconstruction happens almost on its own, you know? But the reconstructing is a lot harder and it might be one of my faults, but I am more than happy to leave them with something, gosh, deconstruct. I shouldn't have even been using deconstruction. It's such a catchphrase now, but I'm more than happy to leave them with the bare face and have them grapple with it and not try to put it back together. And I don't know if that's right or not. I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. I might not be, but I think that much of that comes from my own discomfort with so much of what's there and just kind of allowing that tension to stand, allowing myself to say, I'm a Christian who's committed to finding my place within this larger narrative. And there are parts of it that really make me uncomfortable. And I cannot reckon with the gospel or the kingdom of God. I think there's something very valuable about honestly being able to say that because when we make some of these questions or stories that people have too simple, at some point they find out how complicated they are. And then they think the church and Christianity has tricked them Mm. and that it's false. And so I think there is something valuable to say there are things that are complicated. And by the time students are in college and then 
post-college, we should be having these conversations because they're the type of grappling conversations that I think people should be able to have with their faith to make their faith their own. And I think that's really valuable. Well, just as I'm thinking about this, you ask such good questions, but I'm just thinking about kind of the reality of humanity and how well we see that represented throughout the biblical witness that these are human beings and this is the mess that we've been in. And from creation until now, God has been working with us in our mess, whether we're enslaved people or the enslavers, whether we are clearly male, clearly female or something else. God has known us all along and has been faithfully working with us through all this time. And I think that is really something that has always attracted me to the Old Testament specifically is just that it's messy. It's so messy. And that is so true to what I see in this world and in this Christian struggle. Yeah, me too. Yeah. You just mentioned the people who see themselves in the biblical text as clearly male or clearly female, but we have in the biblical text people who are not. So eunuchs and the modern idea, terminology, and study of people who are intersex. How do your students grapple with that in your class? Is that Are those new ideas? Because when we talk about sexuality in the Bible, those are not the people that we put on center stage and say, let's talk about this. No, absolutely. And I think that for many of my students, when they come into my class and I assign them Megan DeFranz's book on intersex folks within the kingdom of God, it is the very first time they've heard the phrase. They've, I think for the most part that they may have heard LGBTQ and they know about those realities within our world, but they have never heard intersex before. Now that may be changing just because of, I guess, the visibility of sexual difference is really on the rise, I would say, but very often they have never heard that these intersex conditions are even a possibility. And so it's really eye-opening then to open this book and to start reading about all of these different intersex conditions that a variety of people have that we likely interact with daily and we didn't even know it. And part of that is just because of modern medical technology that we've been able to erase intersex conditions because doctors will fix, quote unquote, the problem early on. And there's been a lot of backlash to that lately of intersex persons saying, hey, I didn't ask for this, quote unquote, fix. This isn't what I was about. But the other thing that the fixing has accomplished is that we've erased intersex conditions so that we no longer know that they exist. And that wasn't the case in the ancient world. Even within the Hebrew Bible, we have this category for eunuchs from birth. 
people who were born with ambiguous characteristics where they could not be assigned male or female. And even Augustine talks about, I forget the word that he uses, but it's something akin to hermaphrodites. And he just says, oh, in all places in all the world, we have these people. But for us, what we've decided to do in our culture is to name them by, I think he says the better sex, which is male. And so Folks throughout the ancient world, there's always been a way of seeing this kind of sexual difference that we have now lost. And hopefully we're regaining it because these people are legitimate human beings created in the image of God that should not be erased. But very often that my students, their eyes get wide and they're like, I have never heard of this. I've never thought about this. Hmm. And one of the nice things that thinking through intersex conditions can do for these students is to kind of help break down very often the way that our culture thinks about sexual difference is in regard to genitalia. But there are other ways of thinking about this. And so maybe we should be focusing on chromosomes. And so often for these different intersex conditions, you may have XXY, and then the person presents in maybe as female or as male, and the chromosomes don't match the genitalia or don't match. We have so, I think it's so interesting in our culture that we say that it's about the genitals, but we don't really think that because we're not asking anyone what they have down there. We're much more interested in how. I think that I appear very female. I have longer hair. I'm wearing makeup. I'm wearing jewelry. And that's how I signal to the world that I'm identifying as female. And very often, those are the kinds of things that we rely on. And for men, often it's facial hair or a shorter haircut or a masculine way of dressing. And so even though on the one hand, our culture seems to, we speak out of two sides of our mouths, you know, we're like, genitals are the way that we decide that you're male or female. But also we want you to reflect that in the way that you present yourself. Cause we don't, we don't want to like, we don't want to know what your genitals actually look like. We just want you to tell us based on other signifiers. Right. And we want those to be cohesive, the one in the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we're not even taking into account these other factors like chromosomes and things like that. And I just think that that's so telling Mm. that we want people to present themselves in a certain way so that we're not confused about what their genitals are. Yeah. It's awfully presumptuous. Yeah. When your students are studying the biblical text and the biblical context, do they find that the Bible itself is presenting a different type of way of interacting with people aside from genitalia? (laughs) That's a great question. I never thought I'd ever ask that question. (laughs) These are the sorts of things that I tend to bring up for people, but One of the things that I think is most interesting, at least within our New Testament context and what we've been reading in regard to how the Greco-Roman world thought about these things, 
we tend to think of sexuality as being binary, right? So male yeah. or female. And a lot of a, a lot of that will hang on the early chapters in Genesis and be like, oh, God created them male and female. And we sometimes forget that the Bible doesn't really stop there, that it keeps on going. But one of the things that has been so fascinating is to just think in this Greco-Roman context that people didn't necessarily conceive of just male and female, but rather it was kind of a sliding scale which is not the way that we think about it at all. Right. But there was this idea that men were the perfect representation of humanity and women were some variation along the, so you start over on, you know, your right-hand side with man, men, and then you could slide down towards feminine and just have kind of a mixture of different characteristics. And then once you got all the way to, I should probably talk about it as like the masculine side and then the non-masculine side, because everything seems to have been defined in terms of masculinity and not really femininity. And so by the time you got all the way to the non-masculine side, you were at the place of like the corrupt human, Hmm. you know? And so it wasn't even a duality. It wasn't even male and female. It was male or corrupt male which bothers me greatly, of course, as someone who identifies as female and gets my hackles up. But to just try to draw people out of thinking in terms of those binaries that we've always thought in terms of, kind of like it would never have occurred to me to not think in terms of literal heaven, literal hell, but we should. It's very interesting to kind of try to break out of that duality to realize that People have not always conceived of gender and sexuality in the same way that we do today. Yeah. And that's always really eye-opening for my students. And they just think, what? How could they not think in terms of just male and just female? And to just segue into the unit conversation, the biblical witness has a place for people who don't fit into those categories of male and female. And what is so interesting and so incredibly gospel-ish to me is that those folks in many places are elevated, right? So to the point, like in Isaiah, you've got eunuchs crying out because they're like, oh, I'm just a dried up tree. And Isaiah has this prophecy that says, don't say that. Don't just say that you're a dried up tree. In fact, In God's kingdom, God will give you a place that is better than sons and daughters, better than the son or daughter, either or, but you will be elevated. And it doesn't even end there. You go into the New Testament and Jesus is talking about eunuchs and he gives three categories, people who are born eunuchs, people who are made eunuchs, and people who become eunuchs for the kingdom of God. And he says, these people... They are the ones who are truly blessed. These people who find themselves far outside of any sliding scale or binary, they're the ones who Jesus elevates. 
And doesn't that just make sense? Isn't that just who Jesus is and who our Old Testament prophets would be to say to folks, hey, these people, and you're my Deuteronomy person, right? And so you know that very often the law is wrestling with this. The law is like, oh my gosh, this gender difference, these eunuchs, can we really have them in the assembly? And it takes a lot of wrestling through these things, but ultimately for a long time, eunuchs are excluded from the assembly. But then your prophet Isaiah comes and says, you know what? Forget that. Let's elevate them. And Jesus does the same thing. Yeah. What is restoration really going to look like? Yeah. You know, and restoration is all these people who are on the edges. So widows, orphans, single people. (laughs) It's like just all these people who don't fit the normal laws of society when they are fully included. Ah, restoration has happened. Yeah. That is what the kingdom of God really looks like. Yeah. And I love the story of the Ethiopian eunuch because it just drives that home. You've got this guy, a eunuch who is othered ethnically and othered sexually. And he says to Philip, hey, man, what is to keep me from being baptized? And I don't think that's a throwaway question for him. You know, I think that for us, we read it as a rhetorical question that the eunuch says, what's to keep me from being baptized? And we think that the automatic response would be nothing. But that guy, he has just been to Jerusalem to worship and he was excluded. And so now he is reading from the prophet Isaiah and he says to Philip, what's to keep me from being baptized? And Philip says, I see some water over there. I think that's all we need. And, and the guy, it, it's this radical inclusion of the kingdom of God mm. that I cannot get over, that despite the way that we like to slice and dice, whether we like to say male and female, and that's it, or whether we like to say male is the only way to be, and that's it, that's not the way that the rest of the story goes. Whoa. Honestly, I have never read that particular story in that way. I have never taken the time to notice the way that person was described and what that would mean in his lived reality. But with a little careful reading and understanding of background, the story becomes more poignant, right? Do you find that your students in your class have the freedom to bravely enter these conversations Mm -hmm. in maybe ways that the church, like out there in the wild, in normal society, maybe doesn't have the same permission to be brave? Do you think it's a, a location thing or an age thing? Because I... I just talk to so many more younger people now who aren't so afraid of the conversation that adults seem to be afraid of it somehow. I think there are a couple of different things at play. Number one, we find ourselves in a setting in which we're trying to get educated. And there aren't that many places for that just out there in the world. Even Christian education within churches, you're not going to read Megan DeFrance's big old intersex book. It's just not going to happen. And so we've got just a space set aside for sheer education, reading and trying to understand. And I think that that opens up a lot of different avenues. 
But I do think that this younger generation, I think that one of the things that's really happened is that representation. When I was growing up, I didn't know anyone who was anything other than male, female, straight, cisgender. And that was, those were the only options that were out there. But now the students that I'm getting are growing up in contexts where they've actually seen or may be part of these LGBTQIA expressions. I don't, and lots of times I don't know, they don't tell me one way or another, but, and the other thing that I'm finding more and more because I get a lot of youth pastors. This tends to be the way the church does things is that you have a college student in your church who happens to be a religion major. Clearly they should be the youth pastor. And lots of these kids are so gifted. They're great youth pastors and they have LGBTQ kids in their youth groups. They're there. And I think that that is kind of a new thing for the church that these very often kids, sometimes adults, but these people are there And though we may, I think they've always been there, even when we haven't acknowledged them. And we're getting to a place in our culture where we cannot ignore them anymore. And I think that's really cool. I think that's been really helpful. And so I do find that my students are much more open to discussing these things because they're faced with that reality daily, whether it's in their ministry or in their home church in which they're being ministered to. But the other thing that I do find is that for these kids, because almost to a person, my students are coming from more conservative Christian backgrounds, just like I did. And for them to ask the question of whether or not a Christian can be affirming that's a wild and radical thing to do because they come into my classrooms and they come to the Bible with the question already answered for them that being affirming of LGBTQ persons is not an option, but their posture much more than previous generations is one of openness and uh, just a, a strong desire to love LGBTQ persons. And so there's a good bit of tension and that's what we've experienced in our class this tension between, gosh, these kids are here, I want to love them. And gosh, the answer is, I cannot affirm their identity. And that's a difficult place to be. And so to be in a classroom where we ask, well, can you? Can you affirm their sexual orientation and gender identity? That's new. That's a whole new thing. And so it, yeah. It it takes a good bit of sitting with it and trying to think through it. Yeah. And I applaud your courage to model for them those kinds of being willing to sit in the ambiguity and in the tension and say, this feels really uncomfortable. So just buckle in. It's going to be a semester of uncomfortable and uncomfortable is not wrong uncomfortable is just acknowledging the complicated aspect of it. And so let's see what we learn when we engage. And I think that is something I, that attitude, that posture is something I desperately want the church to hold on to and to become better at. Yeah. 
And I. So if we can all become like Dr. Anna. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> and I would just love for the church and I love for my students in general to just be okay with coming to a place where they say, I don't know. Because when you enter with that idea of being affirming is not an option, there is movement being made when you come to a place where you say, I don't know, and you're willing to actually examine, where should I fall? Where does the Bible fall? Where does God fall on all of this? We also read a book. This was a really interesting moment in my classroom. We read a book on LGBTQ suicide and the church. And suicide rates for LGBTQ youth are just really high. And so many of these students are ministering to them. And so much of what we were reading, the testimonies of these people, was just this kind of, gosh, I'm between a rock and a hard place. Because the church is telling me that God loves me. And they're also telling me that I shouldn't be gay. And that just seemed for a lot of these people that were being interviewed in the book, it seemed like a really difficult place to be to the point that there wasn't a good way out that they could come up with other than suicide. And reading through this book, it was really eye-opening. But one of my students used a really interesting analogy. She said, you know, Dr. Segas, I've always heard that whole evangelist motto of like, you know, I believe in Jesus. And when I die, if it turns out that I'm wrong, then I don't lose anything. You know, if I'm right, I gain heaven. But if I'm wrong, I don't lose anything. And she's like, I kind of think the same way about being affirming of these LGBTQ kids. Like, if we're affirming, are we losing anything? But if we're not, they're dying. And I was like, wow, that it was just such an interesting juxtaposition of this very, what I would think of as conservative evangelism mode being transferred over to LGBTQ inclusion. It blew my mind. I was like, interesting. Do your students, since this is the second time that you've done this senior seminar, do the students end the semester all on the same page or do they end all over the place? They tend to end all over the place. You know, I'll have some generally when I have these undergraduate students, they come in, like I was saying, being non-affirming. And this is reducing everything now to that question that people usually assume (laughs) that will be the question, but they come in being non-affirming. And then some of them will change through the course of the semester to being affirming. That's not my agenda. That's not what I'm here to do. I just want us to explore what the Bible has to say about these things. But one of the transformations that I do see in these students is that they're more open to asking the questions. And I think that that's really good. So I've never seen a student come in thinking that they know the answer and then leave thinking that the answer is the same or even that the question is the same, which I think is really cool. One of the things that's been really difficult that we've really encountered in this LGBTQ suicide book is this idea of love the sinner, hate the sin which is so much a part of the way that we're taught in churches because we're all sinful. And so loving people, but disliking sin is always a good thing. But we've come up in this book against folks who say, gosh, when you say that you love me, but you hate my sexual identity or gender identity or any of those things, that just doesn't feel like love. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's such an important thing for 
us as ministers to hear. Because if we're saying something and we're trying to be loving and people can't receive it as loving, then maybe it's not loving. And that has been a point, I think, for my students that they've really been, whether they're affirming or not, they've really been able to say, okay, I can see how that doesn't feel loving. And I'm going to have to rethink how I will love these people. Hmm. So that's been really good. Wow. Thank you so much. I hope that I can just take maybe your reading list, some of those books that your students are reading, and maybe I'll just add them to the episode notes. And if people want to explore different views and different aspects and ask questions and just ask even the question, am I positive? I know the exact answer. Am I positive? I know what the question is. That's a good place to start. Yeah. So maybe, maybe people can do that. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. I know we're right in the middle of a teaching day for you. And I just appreciate not only the time that you're giving, but the way you are creating these spaces for your students to ask the questions they really want to be asking, but don't always have permission to ask. And my professor friends who are creating that kind of space are like so near and dear to me. I just love that. So I, I appreciate that about you to know. And so thank you so much for that as well. Oh, thanks, Cindy. This has been fun. Yeah. I know I said it last week, but I'm going to say it again. I appreciate the way Dr. Segas gives permission to her students to ask questions and to explore if they're even asking the right questions. It is rather gutsy to create a space that gives permission to people to come to different conclusions. There were several books mentioned in the course of this conversation, so I will add a few links in the episode notes in case you want to take a look for yourself. Next week, I am joined by Kristen Komernicki, who will help us learn how to have hard conversations about sexuality in the Bible. Once again, we are not discussing what is right and wrong. We're not discussing this in a bifocal way, but we are going to be talking about how we purposefully explore what the Bible has to say with people who do not agree with you. Is there even value in that conversation? And how does it remain a conversation and not a debate? I'm glad you were here today, and a special thanks goes to my Patreon team. People like Lisa and Asuga Abaya and Kathy and Scott Parker make Context Matters sustainable. Thank you so much for being on my amazing team. I produced this episode. Luke Bronner of Milieu Media Group did the edits and the final mix, and Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created the music. I look forward to our conversation next week. Until then... Be safe, take care of each other, and stay curious about the world around you. 